I'm, I'm really eager to speak to you tonight. I have a, a message from God's word for you that I am convinced is what uh, God has to say to each of you. And what's exciting to me about this passage in the Gospel of John is how it ideally brings together everything we've talked about so far. This has been a a heavy theme to deal with coming off of a difficult year for so many. To be continually assaulted with death and its presence in our world is frustrating and discouraging. And then to come to camp and hear that same theme repeated, albeit from a biblical perspective and one that God wants us to have so that we could number our days. We've talked about the, the futility of life, the, the shortness, the brevity of life in, from so many different angles. And there remains to me in my mind one more question that we have to answer. And it's what would Jesus think of this? Pastor MacArthur taught us that that Jesus wanted us to understand the need for repentance, that final judgment is coming after death through the parable of, of Lazarus and the rich man. But I want to ask the question, what would Jesus do with death when he's confronted with it in his own life? And ministry. It was in the 19th century that a fellow wrote a book that became a bracelet. Uh, The book was uh, subtitled, What Would Jesus Do? Something About the Life of Christ. It wasn't a well-known book, but someone not too many years ago decided that concept of what would Jesus do was inspirational enough to make money off of. So, they filled Christian bookstores with these little rubber bracelets that said WWJD. Maybe you have one on right now. Maybe you're 40 years old. So (laughs) if you do, congratulations, you you bought into the marketing scheme. Uh, And it wasn't a bad question, but it was uh, one that sometimes didn't get very many biblical answers. And it's one that people often ask when they're confronted with a problem in society uh, that you know the death penalty. Well, what would Jesus do? I think that you can answer that question theologically by looking at the scriptures, but that's not usually what they mean. They just mean like, how would Jesus feel? And what they mean by that is, well, how do I feel about it? And well, what would Jesus do? Well, he would never do anything like that because, well, I would never do anything like that. And I have a bracelet that says WWJD. What would Jesus do? And that trend, though it has passed mostly, uh, it reminds us of that question that we are prone to ask. How would Jesus think about something? How would Jesus address something? How would Jesus face the problems that we face? And if the problem that we're facing this week is the utterly inescapable reality of life in a fallen world that 100% of us are going to die that people we love and cherish will not be with us forever, that our own lives will ebb and dissipate, we'll grow older, 
we'll get sick, we'll die. Some of us at an old age, some of us at a younger age. It makes us want to ask the question, what, what would Jesus do with this? And we don't have to speculate, we don't have to guess, we don't have to search our feelings and think, well, you know, it makes me sad, so it must have made Jesus sad, uh, or, you know, something like that. The, the idea is, is that we can actually look at an instance in the life of Jesus where he confronted death, where he was face to face with death, and it actually happened before his own death. In fact, the Bible is filled with death and resurrection. I mean, thousands upon thousands upon millions of people die in the pages of Scripture, uh, both by the passing of time and specifically recorded. You could study the Bible and follow along uh, all the places where where people died and, and even places where intervention was involved, where death was flipped, where someone was raised. First Kings 17, there was a widow of Zarephath. Her son died, the only son she had, the one that God had provided for her and was so precious to her. And Elijah raised him up from the dead as an act of mercy towards this widow. Uh, Elisha, the guy who followed him, does the same with the Shunammite woman's son. He dies and, and through the power of God in a miraculous way, uh, Elisha lays down and resurrects him. Uh, Elisha does the same thing another time in his ministry. Uh, In Luke 7, Jesus encounters uh, the widow of Nain, and her son died in an act of mercy and compassion. Jesus resurrects this boy as well. Uh, Jesus meets a powerful and influential soldier in Luke chapter 8, and uh, also recorded in Mark chapter 5 by the name of Jairus, and uh, his daughter had died, and, and Jesus Uh, raises her up from the dead. And so Jesus confronted death all the time. Uh, On the cross, when Jesus died, it was such a cosmic event in God's plan that at the death of Jesus, graves all over Jerusalem opened and people were resurrected in this mysterious moment recorded us for, for us in Matthew 27. And so all these saints were raised as kind of a, a foretaste of a resurrection to come. In the time of the apostles, in the book of Acts, uh, there's a, a, a person named Tabitha who's also called Dorcas. Thankfully, people don't use that name anymore. But Tabitha dies and is raised by the apostle Paul, uh, Eutychus. Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 20. And there's a kid up like on the balcony named Eutychus. And it's been a long week at camp. And Paul's preaching kind of long. I'm, I'm not saying that's going to happen. And, and Eutychus falls out of the window and cracks himself on the ground and dies. And Paul, in an act of, of mercy and a demonstration of God's power, raises Eutychus from the dead. I mean, you'd have cussed too if you fell out a window and died. So there's all these, there's all these instances of death and resurrection and death and resurrection throughout the whole Bible, in Jesus' life and ministry, and then in the apostles. And, and so it's right that when we think about death, we have a tendency to think about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of of Jesus. And as we're trying to number our days and think about our own mortality, our own fragility, our own impending death, uh, we need to think about what does Jesus think about death when he encountered it. And what we have in John chapter 11, you can open your Bible to, to John chapter 11, the gospel of John chapter 11. 
is a familiar story to all of you. You heard it when you were kids. It's Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And in John's gospel, this serves as a prequel, like a preview, like a a setup for the resurrection to come of the main character of John's gospel, which is Jesus Christ. But in this encounter, really the heart of it, you can look at it in, in verse 25, where Jesus says to, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? A timeless question in a profoundly human scene where someone is grieving the loss of a family member, a friend of Jesus, And Jesus speaks of his power over life and death. And I don't think we can have a a complete theme here in thinking about our own death and our own mortality and our own smoke-like, vapor-like nature of life in a frustrating and fallen world unless we can look at Jesus' life and see how he responded when confronted with the death of someone he loved. And I'd like you to try to listen to this story as if for the first time, because it's a story full of surprises. And sometimes familiarity with a Bible story makes us not see those surprises. And so imagine, if you will, that you're a character in this story, someone observing that you don't know that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, that you're taking this all in as it happens, And I'd like to look at it in in terms of its surprises. This passage surprises me in four ways. And I'd like to just walk you through these four surprises and, and I hope help you see why you could have hope in a world marked by death. And how Jesus's response to the death of his friend gives us so many different ways to to think about the reality of death and to focus our eyes on Jesus and the hope we have in him and eventually lead us towards the cross and the resurrection of our Lord, which is a preview of our own resurrection. But we can't think rightly about death unless we're able to say, what, what did Jesus do when he was confronted with death? when he was face to face with death. So let's look at this story with fresh eyes if we can. And the first 16 verses, and we'll go through this really fast, and I won't cover all the details because it's a a longer chapter, but I think that we'll find a lot of help here. The first 16 verses, let's call it a surprising delay. A surprising delay. Verse 1 of John chapter 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Just to give you a little context, Jesus is not in Bethany. He's far away. That's why they had to send word to him. He's in Bethnea. It's up in the north, 
kind of where Jesus was from, where so much of his ministry happened, places like Nazareth you're familiar with. It was 110 miles away from where these sisters and their brother Lazarus lived. They lived just outside of Jerusalem, probably in a pretty nice estate just outside of the city. The reason I know it was nice is because they were landowners, and it's mentioned that Mary, the one whose brother was sick, was the same person who gave the costly gift of perfume, that the gospel writers tell us was worth a year's wages for a laborer. I mean, she busted a jar of perfume worth $25,000 in today's market. That says something about this family's wealth and influence. Also, when we see the funeral of Lazarus described, it's a pretty lavish affair, a significant one. It was appropriate for someone of this standing in the community And so you need to know that Jesus is far away. He's 110 miles away. It's a two to three day journey. If you're taking charter buses, it takes 70 days. But Jesus is far from from Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And the word sent to Jesus is so significant in verse three. Look what it says. Lord, the one that you love is sick. There's such a human element in this story. And there's something here that's remarkable in so many encounters with Jesus in the Bible. And and I think some of you are having this encounter this week as well as you're starting to realize something about your relationship with Jesus. Do you see how she said that to him as she sent a messenger? Lord, the one you love is sick. The people in the Bible that are close to Jesus often note not their love for him predominantly, but instead they speak of his love for them. The author of, of the Gospel of John, his name was John, doesn't call himself John in this Gospel. He calls himself the beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved, and he wasn't being arrogant by you know, puffing out his chest and saying, of the disciple that Jesus loved. It was just so natural to him to speak of his relationship with Jesus as being the recipient of the love of Jesus. And I think that that the more you understand and fathom the love of God manifest in Christ in your life, you would speak like that too. It's a very man-centered thing to talk about how much we love Jesus, and it's not a very effective way to think about it either because our love for Jesus goes up and down, doesn't it? I mean, at camp, it's, it's high, but maybe the week after, it doesn't feel like that. Can I remind you that it doesn't work when you think about Jesus' love for you that way because his love is unfathomable and deep, It's unchanging and true. It doesn't vary based on circumstances or feelings. This is the depth of the love of Jesus. And and those who knew him in his earthly ministry understood that deeply. And so when she sent word to Jesus, she said, the one who you love is sick. His love for his disciples is noteworthy. And it's how we should all think about our relationship to Jesus. 
That's how the Apostle Paul thought about his relationship to Jesus. In Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. There's something overwhelming when we think about the love of Jesus for undeserving and unworthy sinners like us. It's noteworthy that Jesus loved Lazarus and that was well known by the sisters. And it's how they thought about their relationship with Jesus. Being loved by Jesus is really one of the marks of a true disciple. What if you thought about your relationship with Jesus that way? Instead of based on your performance or your church attendance or, or how good you are or, or how bad you are, what if you thought about it in terms of the depth of Jesus' love for you? I think that would be very biblical. One author says it this way, one of the common features of those who are intimate with Jesus is not that they love Jesus particularly well, but that they are particularly loved by him. And that's why the delay is so surprising. Because in verse four it says, when he heard this, Jesus, who loved Lazarus so obviously and so well and so deeply, says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. You see, Jesus is completely sovereign And he understood how this story would end. And it's important to note that at the beginning of this story, that Jesus had this all under control, that there isn't an inch of this universe that is outside of the realm of the sovereignty, the reign, the kingship, the control of King Jesus. And he knew that everything that was happening in this fallen world was happening under the authority and auspices of God's sovereignty, of the sovereign reign of Jesus. And so he knew what was going to happen because this was Jesus' world. And he said it was for God's glory and so that God's son would be glorified through it. And John wants you to understand that Jesus in his sovereignty, is never to be pitted against his love. And so he says in verse five, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The the love of Jesus for his disciples is on permanent display. That the circumstances of a, a critical and terminal illness do not sway at all the reality of the unchangeable nature of the love of Jesus for his disciples. That should encourage you that life in a fallen world can be navigated with faith and trust in the sovereign God because he is not some deity who reigns above us with a kind of indifference towards us, but he is a sovereign God who completely controls all circumstances in this world, whether they are good or bad. Whatever has happened to you in this life that has been difficult or what has been, has been sweet for you, whatever is ahead of you on the horizon of your life that will be the hardest thing you ever bear or the sweetest thing you ever face, all of it under the authority and from the hand of King Jesus. 
Jesus through the meticulous sovereignty of the Son of God who not only reigns and rules over you, but who loves you. And his love is deep and profound and unshakable and unchanging. And so John reiterates what she said in her correspondence to the Lord, the one you love is sick, by reminding us that Jesus truly loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is a family that Jesus was close to. Not some random people that approached Jesus on the street, but someone that Jesus had a relationship with. He was intimate with them. He'd been to their home. They had sat under his teaching. They had shared meals with the Lord. They had seen his miraculous works. They had heard his wise teaching. And they were friends with the Lord the objects of the love of Jesus. And that's why this delay is portrayed in such surprising language. Verse six, yet when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. The three to four day journey should have started already. It should have commenced. The disciples probably thought Jesus was being self-protective or protective of them because it would be foolish to go towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem was hot right now with opposition to Jesus. There was people, religious leaders in Jerusalem, who were already plotting to kill Jesus. And so Jesus was safer up north in their assessment. And so they probably thought it makes sense to stay away. And so he stays away for two more days. In verse seven, he says to his disciples, let us go back to Judea, Jerusalem, Bethania, where, where Lazarus was sick. And the disciples push back, verse eight. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there. I love when disciples remind Jesus of stuff. The omniscient Jesus, who knows everything. Just a quick reminder, Jesus, they tried to kill you there. I think Jesus or anyone would remember that. But they remind him anyway. I'm sure they're concerned for Jesus. And this causes the journey to be delayed even longer, verse 9. Jesus gives a bit of a, a wise proverb here. He says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. Verse 10, it's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. What is Jesus saying in this kind of paradoxical statement about day and night, well, he's reminding them that he always operates on a divine timetable. Everything he does is for the glory of God, that his timing is always perfect. And although these friends of his, who everyone knows he loves, need him desperately, he is intentionally delaying his departure because he is following not someone else's opinion of when Jesus should act or how Jesus should act, but he is doing what he always does, the will of his father, the one who knows the difference between day and night, who operates on a divine timetable. Another reminder that when we pray to God, we ought not pit God's sovereignty against his love. His total sovereignty over life and death is paramount in our thinking. 
The Bible says it's appointed for a man once to die and then the judgment. Jesus understood that there was no way that the disciples' decisions or the travel delay or anything happening in this story was changing the plan of God. And we have to be careful when we pray because we're often more concerned about the timetable of our prayers being answered or the way we want our prayers being answered than for what Jesus taught us when he taught his disciples to pray. Thy will be done. That's how we have to think. Jesus didn't go when he was requested, when he was asked to go. In our trials and difficulties, we can be very slow to remember that God is the one who orders day and night. That the turning of this world and the progress of time does not happen by natural forces. It does not happen just by evolution or by chance or by some kind of happenstance or coincidence or serendipity or some word like that. Everything that happens is under the sway and influence and plan of the sovereignty of God. And the absolute sovereignty of Christ is on display in this passage in his intentional delay. And the disciples are somewhat slow about this and they don't understand. So Jesus tells them in verse 11, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Again, the sovereignty and omniscience, the fact that Jesus knows and sees everything a hundred miles south of where he is. He knew the moment that Lazarus died and he knew his plan was to go and resurrect him. So he says in poetic and veiled and parabolic language to his disciples and friends, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, a euphemism for death, but I am going there to wake him up. And the disciples have a real dumb, dumb moment here in verse 12, where they go, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Again, first conversation with Jesus. Hey, Lord, remember they tried to kill you there. I'm a helpful disciple. Reminder, Lord, they tried to kill you. One more reminder, Lord. I don't know if you've read anything about this, but the recuperative power of sleep is well known. Like, if he feels bad, you know, maybe some pillow time, a little, you know, a snooze, herbal tea, chamomile. It does wonders for my sleep. I mean, I don't know about you. I really shouldn't talk about sleep the last night of camp. Wake up! It's not time to go to sleep yet. But the disciples are being somewhat thick-headed here. And John has to clarify, being one of the disciples, getting to write this down later, Jesus had been speaking of his death. Oh, really? But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Verse 14. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Wow. A surprising delay. 
The delay is for the glory of God. Verse 4. The delay is on the timetable of God. Verse 9. And the delay is to demonstrate to the disciples their need for faith. Jesus does this. He doesn't allow this. Jesus does this so that something significant might happen in his followers' lives. He wants them to believe. When tragedy strikes in your life, when God's sovereignty is bitter and not sweet, when a chapter turns in your life that is unwelcome to you, when you experience that foul odor of death come over those you love, you need to know that God has a plan in that moment, that he is provoking you to believe to trust and to follow him. And so Jesus has orchestrated this moment for the faith of his disciples. The question that he will ask, sweet, sweet Martha, do you believe this is the most central and significant question that any of us could hear. I hope you hear it already. Do you believe this? Why did God bring you here from Alaska, California, other states I can't think of? Texas. Because he wants you to believe. Why does good happen in your life? Why does bad happen in your life? All of it from the fingers of God's meticulous sovereignty and all of it pointing to an opportunity for us short-sighted and limited creatures to trust that God will be glorified and that we can believe. And so they set out on their journey with the bold words of Thomas. I always call him Doubting Thomas. In this moment, he could be known as Bold Thomas. If your name is Thomas, you could be Bold Thomas. Verse 16, then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's also go with him that we may die with him. I love that. Now, it kind of depends on how you read it. It could be Eeyore Thomas. Let's go with him. We'll die with him. I don't know. But I'm going Bold Thomas. And now we move away from the surprising delay, which is so shocking and unexpected, to the scene where the sisters start to inquire why this is all happening. Verse 17. On his arrival, this would be two to three days later, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. It was an influential family. They had a lot of friends, a lot of business associates likely. And in those days, it was normal convention for uh, everyone to come to the home of the deceased person to comfort their family. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Two different responses to grief, Both of them, 
I think, an expression of incredulity. They just can't believe it. The sisters are incredulous at his delay. Martha is going to go talk to him about it. And Mary's going to just kind of sit back. They cannot fathom that their Lord, who loved them and loved their brother, wouldn't drop everything and come. That all these days would pass by expecting to see Jesus come over the horizon with his disciples at any moment with a parade of followers and and after seeing him heal countless people and knowing his power over death and disease to strangers. In Nazareth, he healed strangers. He spent entire nights healing people, casting out demons, fixing a withered arm, lifting up a paralyzed man. He didn't even know these people like he knew this family. They had to be thinking that. And he let Lazarus die? All the comforters are there. Now Jesus is there. And Martha has something to say to him. And she boldly says in verse 21, in her grief and brokenness and sorrow and confusion, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a great statement, honestly. It's an accusation, isn't it? And maybe that makes you nervous. But if Jesus can handle the dum-dum interactions of his disciples prior, I think he can very well handle the heartbroken accusation of a woman he loves in her grief. And that's a word to all of us. God can handle your questions. God can handle your accusations. I'm not telling you to be irreverent with God, but if your heart is broken, would you tell him about it? Would you talk to him? I mean, Jesus can handle your doubts. He can handle your feelings. He can handle your fears. There is no hesitation in Jesus to welcome you into his audience, to lend his ear to you. I mean, certainly if Jesus loved this woman and the the passage tells us that he did, he is here to hear her cries and her accusation of the Lord is in fact quite accurate. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. All her trust and faith was exposed in that moment to having been shattered, disappointed, let down, and heartbroken. But she has a little bit Still, in verse 22, when she counters that, you know, just trying to think through the the crashing grief and saying, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Lord, if you had, but whatever you, you ask. And I don't know if that was a full expression of faith in Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead because later when he says, open the tomb, she's like, no, 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 he's dead. And Jesus had resurrected before, but nobody had been dead this long. And there's such intentionality in his delay, she had to hear eventually at some point in the funeral procession and the the, the following scenes from the disciples that Jesus was intentionally delaying for some reason. 
They probably told her about what he said about the glory of God, about day and night. They don't know what's going on. And so Jesus speaks to her some comforting words. And let's call this section the surprising sermon. If that's the surprising delay, we'll call this the surprising sermon. Verse 23 is where it starts. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. A great word of consolation, she thinks. And she'd already sat in Jesus's classes. She'd taken Jesus' systematic theology. She'd taken the class on end times and eschatology. She understood that as Jesus explained the Old Testament and showed her that God would judge both righteous and wicked and reward them accordingly and and that in the end there would be a great separation between the, the righteous and the wicked. Jesus had preached about that lots of times. Certainly, uh, Martha would have heard those sermons and she had a, an understanding of, of how things would happen in the end. She knew something about the culmination of all things, about the fulfillment of all things, about the end of the world and the judgment of God and, and that there would someday be a resurrection of the dead. She had that hope because she was a father follower of Jesus. And so when Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again, he means in like an hour when he walks over there. But she thinks he's going, remember what we covered in class? There's a final resurrection. And she's thinking very doctrinally, very factually, very Q&A with J-Mac kind of a way. She's just like thinking about the facts here and asking questions and And she hears Jesus say, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Good Bible answer. She knew Jesus, so she knew that in the end he would set everything right. But she's focused on the timing of things. She'd heard Jesus talk about it and she'd been trained by Jesus and she had good eschatology and she knew there was a resurrection of the just and the unjust. But Jesus preaches to her a surprising sermon. It's only two sentences long and it has three points and it goes like this. I am, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will, even though he dies, (laughs) will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then that question, do you believe this? That's the whole sermon. And it had to catch her off guard because she understood that she could have hope in the future that someday she would see her her deceased brother again. But Jesus wants her to stop focusing on the future and stop focusing on the timing and stop focusing on the doctrine of the resurrection to come and stop focusing on the eschatological chart that she understood and stop looking at whatever kind of outcomes could be eventual. And Jesus wants her to look at him. And when she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, Jesus almost cuts her off and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Two sentences, three points. I am the resurrection, Jesus says. Point one. Point two, I am the life 
Point three, believe and live and never die. And then an applicational question. Do you believe this? That sermon is as timely and relevant tonight in this room as it was to that grieving sister. You could hear this same sermon right now and you could answer that same question. Are you aware? Are your eyes fixed? Not on a thousand facts that you learned in your Sunday school class. Are your eyes fixed? Not on you having the perfect doctrine and having every chart of the end times written in the back of your Bible. Are you fixed with your eyes focused on the Son of God, on Jesus Christ? Because if you have your eyes on him, you are seeing someone who is resurrection and life. And you are being called from your sin and from your brokenness to to walk out of this world of death and to embrace the Son of God and to trust the Son of God and to believe and have life and to never die. And you are being asked personally and directly, do you believe this? Do you believe it? Because if you do, it'll change your life. And she's trusting, but she's confused because she's focused on the future and she wasn't looking at him. And she's thinking about the timing and she's not trusting Jesus, the person in front of her. And she's thinking about the chart, about the resurrection and the wicked and the, and the good. And, and she's not thinking about her heart, trusting in the son of God standing in front of her. And she hears him say, I am the resurrection, the life. John keeps recording these statements that Jesus loved to preach around when he would say, I am the bread, I am the shepherd, I am the way, I am the door, I am the sheepfold. All these metaphors that Jesus would use throughout the gospel of John listed as kind of a structure of this book. Now he adds another one, I am the resurrection and the life. And he just wants her to look at him. Look at me, Martha. Stop trying to sort this out and look at Jesus. He's the one with the power and the ability to defeat death. He's the one that has in himself life itself. He's the one who within himself has the power to undo the grave and to raise the dead. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. And I think that could be a misunderstood phrase. And so I try to help you understand this with an illustration that's somewhat dumb. But because I, I think you could take it like this, like, Jesus said he's the resurrection and the life. And so, you know, we're near Santa Fe where the hippies die. Uh, you know, Jesus is, says he's the life. And wherever life is, there is where Jesus is. Look, there's a bird. Jesus is a bird. Life, man. So that's dumb. And the reason that's dumb is, is it misunderstands what a metaphor is for. And, it, and the technical word for this is it's trying to think about that statement ontologically. In other words, Jesus is Jesus. Jesus isn't life. Jesus is Jesus. He's not resurrection. But when he says, I am resurrection and life, he's trying to show that those concepts 
are so closely identified with him that they can't be separated from him. Here's the dumb illustration. There was a few years ago before you were allowed to watch TV. There was commercials on TV. There isn't even TV anymore. Now you just stream. Stream and binge. And stream and binge. What will archaeologists say when they found out you streamed and binge? They'll think you were fishing or something. It's weird. But there used to be a commercial on normal TV. It was for a store called the Men's Warehouse. Have you ever heard of the Men's Warehouse? Yeah, some of you have. It's like where kids in Texas rent tuxes for prom. So kids in California get them couture. So anyway. (laughs) So sometimes I laugh at my jokes and you guys don't. (laughs) Anyway, it used to be this commercial for the Men's Warehouse. And the, the dude in the commercial had this gray beard Love a gray beard, by the way. And a gravelly voice. And he would ride in the back of the car with a driver in the front. And he'd wear sunglasses in a suit. And he was selling suits on TV. And, and he'd say, he always had the same line. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. Every commercial. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. So you go to the men's warehouse. They give you a suit. You go to prom. You like the way you look. You guarantee it. So, guarantee it. And that was the commercial. It turns out, and this happened maybe six, seven years ago, that that guy was actually the CEO of the men's warehouse. His name was George Zimmer. And he, the guy in the commercials, started the men's warehouse selling suits out of the trunk of his car. And that expanded to a store and then another store and then 1,500 stores. I mean, this guy was a big deal until seven years ago. The board of directors of the men's warehouse had a meeting. And I, I don't know how it went. I just you know, read about the outcome, Google, Wikipedia. And George Zimmer, I assume, is in the board meeting. And you picture all these guys in, in suits, men's warehouse suits, liking the way they look. He guaranteed it. And they're at the big conference table. You can picture like the board meeting. George Zimmer's at the end of the table. And they look at him and they tell him, George, you're out. The board of directors decided to fire the CEO of the company, the guy who started it and replace him with somebody else. You know, sales were slumping or whatever, or everybody was tired of the, you're gonna like the way you look, guarantee a thing or, or, or whatever. And they decided to change directions and they told him you're out. And I don't know what happened in that board meeting, but I can picture it and make stuff up. And so I, I picture him at the table, surprised by this decision, pushing his chair away from the table, saying, you're going to fire me? I started the men's warehouse in the trunk of my car. 1,500 stores worldwide. You're going to fire me? You're not going to like the way this looks. I guarantee it. And he storms out. That's how I picture it happening. There's no facts with this at all, but I'm picturing it happening that way because you understood what he said, right? I am the men's warehouse. I am the men's warehouse. He's not saying he's a place where you can get a cheap tie. He's not made of bricks and doors and there's a salesman inside of him. 
He's not ontologically the men's warehouse. It's that it's his store. He invented it. He started it. He grew it into what it is. It's that times 10,000 that Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, don't look at the facts about the future that I've taught you. Look at me. You want to know about resurrection? You want to know about victory over the grave? You want to know how this world ends? Before you look at 10,000 details about that, look at me. In your moment of confusion, in your moment of grief, look at Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus, the one who loves you and the one who has the power of life and resurrection. See him and see his power and his ability. Look at him and you will see life. Look at Jesus and you will see resurrection because they belong to him. They are closely and intimately connected with him. He is the author of life and he is the one who has the power of God over the grave. He is the only one who could defeat sin and death. Life and resurrection are standing right in front of you. Stop looking everywhere else at everything else and put your hope, not in a variety of facts about Jesus, put your hope in Jesus and trust in him. And when you do, you will experience life and resurrection. And then the sovereign Christ who is the one who has the power of life and resurrection, asks that personal question, do you believe this? Believe what? Believe that he is life and resurrection. Believe that if you believe in him, you will live even though you die. And whoever lives and believes in him will never die. Do you believe that paradoxical reality that if you trust Jesus, you will die and you will never die. If you trust Jesus, you will live and you will live forever. If you trust Jesus, you will die. But in another sense, you will never die because you will live forever. Do you believe this? Do you believe this about him? Do you believe this about Jesus? Or do you believe in a doctrinal system? Do you believe that your church membership is quite significant? Do you believe you have most of the Bible figured out? Do you believe you have all the answers? Do you believe you're the best kid in your school? Do you believe you have a superior moral code? Do you believe that you're always right all the time? Do you believe that you have everything that you need? But do you, let me ask you, really ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus? Or are you just a religious person? And so a faith located and centered and grounded on the person of Jesus in who he truly is and in his love for you is what's being asked of sweet Martha. Do you believe this? And her response is wonderful. She says, yes, Kurios, yes, Lord, yes, Master, I believe that you are the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God who was to come into the world. Awesome. Somebody asked me last night, high school kid, 
smart girl, sweet girl, she talked to me last night. She said, how do I know that I'm forgiven? How would you answer that? Well, how's your fruit? Come on, show me some fruit. Let me see. Well, that fruit's okay, but mm, mediocre fruit. You're out. How do I know I'm forgiven? The first question you ask before you go snooping fruit, trademark that line, snooping fruit for me. I'm gonna write a book called Snooping Fruit next summer. It'll be released, Zondervan, Snooping Fruit. Before you go snooping fruit, How do I know I'm forgiven? Can you say, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. A radical statement of faith and trust and assurance. Her hope is in Jesus Verse 28, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. How sweet is that? Martha comes running. Mary stays back, her heart undoubtedly bitter, and and Jesus doesn't wait for her to come to him. He summons her. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Another evidence of her faith, she comes to Jesus now Jesus had not yet entered the village, was still at the place where Martha had met him. I love that she like, didn't even let him get to the house. And when the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. I mean, that was the custom of the day. You follow the grieving people around. You never leave them alone. You stay with them. You cry with them. You, you take care of them. And so now this whole crowd is going out there and Mary, verse 12, reaches the place where Jesus was and saw him. She falls at his feet and says the same exact accusation. They had undoubtedly talked about this in the days where they waited and waited and waited. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, hers, less accusation and more just complete and utter despair. She's fallen down on the ground at Jesus' feet. She's pouring her tears out and All these other people are weeping and crying in solidarity with her. They're all mourning this deep loss of this beloved brother, a whole crowd of people. An ancient funeral was loud and it lasted for an entire week and and people would come all dressed in black. There was nothing discreet or private or sanitized or composed or quiet about an ancient Near Eastern funeral. These people would be wailing and moaning and crying the mission, a Jewish commentary says that Jewish families were required to f- hire two flute players to play mournful songs over the course of these seven days of mourning. And a wealthy family would even hire professional mourners to, to fill this crowd in, to just magnify their grief. And, and, and Jesus sees this all happening. He sees this woman he loves at his feet, crying and accusing and brokenhearted and all these mourners and the flute players and the mess that is death and all that attends it with this long procession of a funeral. And Jesus responds in 
what we call surprising emotion. Surprising emotion. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. There's a little note in my Bible there that that tells me what that word means. And it's not what we expect. And we know Jesus is, is genuine with his tears. I mean, the shortest verse in, in the, the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept when he goes to the graveside. He's about to follow. But there's something happening inside the emotional life of the Lord Jesus Christ that's worth noting. Jesus had determined to raise Lazarus from the dead before the messenger ever came to him, right? I mean, he's made that clear. You'd agree with me that Jesus was planning on raising Lazarus. That's what he told the disciples. I'm gonna go wake him up, right? Nod once for yes, and then twice for yes, and then thrice for yes, good. So why is Jesus troubled in his spirit and weeping? Sure, there's got to be some of of Jesus' humanity that just feels for these sisters because they're so sad. But isn't this very fixable? Like in a minute, it's going to get fixed when he says, Lazarus, come forth. Then nobody's crying. I mean, they're crying, but it's like happy cry, right? So why is Jesus deeply moved in spirit and troubled? Well, that word troubled can be translated... Indignant. Indignant? That's a word that means angry, deeply upset. That's not a sad word. That's a mad word. Why is Jesus angry and sad? Why is Jesus moved in his spirit and troubled if he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in two seconds. I mean, he says, where have you laid him? And they say, come and see, Lord. And Jesus is weeping. And the Jews look at this scene and say, see how he loved him, verse 36. It's in the imperative tense. It's, it's, the, it's the imperfect tense. It's the past tense. It's like, see how he used to love him. Oh, he must have really loved him, is what these you know, strangers to the house are saying. And then others, and this shows you that these people, not all of them were, were there in a way that was helpful, said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And honestly, I think they're onto something. It's the same question that Martha asked. This wouldn't have happened if you would have delayed It's the same question that Mary asked. This wouldn't have happened if you had delayed. It's the same question that these mourners asked. Couldn't he have prevented this? And Jesus is indignant. Jesus is angry. Jesus is feeling in his inner man a kind of emotion that has in it a sort of anger and hostility. Not because he's sad that Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is not going to be dead for very much longer. 
He's deeply moved in verse 34. He's indignant in these verses because not that much grief is possible when you're about to raise someone from the dead. He is indignant. He is moved. He is upset and he is angry at the scene of death that surrounds him, not at the loss of his friend. You see, what Jesus is confronting in this famous story is not just personal loss on a personal level, but this story is a prelude of Jesus's encounter with his own death and with death itself. This scene is a scene of death. And Jesus came into this world, the promised one of God, to defeat death. And now here he is, toe-to-toe with it, face-to-face with it. He understands that since the fall from the Garden of Eden, mankind has been numbering their days. They have been slowly marching towards their graves and burying each other and mourning over each other. They'd been laying their babies into the grave when they died. They'd been laying their wives into the ground and mourning their loss and feeling that deep unbreakable sense of loneliness. They had been burying each other for a long time. And Jesus was here to put an end to all of it forever. Why is Jesus outraged? Why is Jesus indignant? Because of the presence of death itself. It provoked his spirit. And what he's about to do with Lazarus is what he came to do, a prelude of what he came to do, not just for one man, but for every single person who trusts in him. Jesus is going face to face and toe to toe with death itself. And all of this fallen world, Jesus knows, is not like it was supposed to be like it used to be in the garden when we walked with God in fellowship and there was no death because every time someone dies it is a reminder of God's holy judgment on a sinful world a world to come is a world that will not have death a world where death will die. And as Jesus moves on his journey closer to Jerusalem, what he's about to do with Lazarus will happen to him by the power of God. And the effect of it will not be one grave opening and it will not be hundreds of graves opening on that day he dies. But in the end, it will be every single grave of every single person who ever trusted in the one who is life and resurrection to spring forth gloriously for all eternity and live in God's perfect paradise forever, restored to a world where there is no death. Death is to be accepted. Death is to be lived in light of, as we have learned this week, but you need to agree with Jesus in that we hate it. It is our enemy. And because we trust Jesus, we no longer have to live in fear of death. This world will come to an end. This world will die and a new world will emerge where death will die. And Jesus will show us that that resurrection and life that he promises in this moment will be fulfilled for all eternity. For Jesus 
as it will be for us. Because every time someone dies, it is a clap of thunder louder than anything you have heard from a rainstorm this week. A clap of thunder from heaven reminding us how much God hates sin and death. And so the indignance of Jesus is a reminder that he hates death and is its ferocious enemy and that Jesus will have the final word. Final surprise is his surprising victory. Jesus once more deeply moved, verse 38, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for there's been there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. It's like every question in this passage isn't just for the sisters, but it's for all of you. Do you believe this? Do you? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I'm reading the Bible, but I'm I'm genuinely asking you this. If you believe this message about the power of Jesus over death, do you realize you will see the glory of God? That's a promise from the Son of God. And he says it to to Martha and Mary when they take away the stone and Jesus looks up and prays to God and says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me and I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may, what? Believe. You tell me what's central in being a follower of Jesus. Being nice, going to church every Sunday. Look, I'm in favor of being nice and going to church every Sunday. But is that central or is faith what saves you? Repeatedly, Jesus just keeps saying that they may believe that you sent me. Tonight, I am calling you, young people, to put your faith in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. Because if you do, this is what will happen to you. They took away the stone and Jesus looked up and he prays that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come Fourth, and the reason he said Lazarus, Puritans used to say that if he would have just said, come forth, everybody in the whole graveyard would have been like, yep. Because that's how powerful Jesus is. And so he says his friend's name, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man, verse 44, came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave close and let him go. The surprising victory is that Jesus demonstrates that he has the power of God to give life and to raise the dead for all who believe on him. He had it then and he has it now. And this story is simply a prelude. The chapter concludes by reminding us that the Jews who saw this saw what Jesus did and some responded in verse 45 the way I pray you'll respond. They put their faith in him 
but others responded by deciding that Jesus was a threat to their religion and he had to be destroyed. And in a prophecy, the high priest says down in verse 50, it's better that one man dies for the people than the whole nation perish. And he didn't even know what he was saying because he was giving us a glimpse of the real surprising victory, which is not the emptying of one grave of one man who will die again, but it's the emptying of a grave of the Son of God who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross in your place, who absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf so that he would never die again and swallow up all of death and hell so that all who place their faith in Jesus, in the gospel, in this glorious statement of victory of God over sin, death, and Satan would belong to him forever. And so they plot to take his life and that's exactly what they do. You know how the story ends. Jesus is arrested. He is crucified on the cross and God in this moment pours out his wrath on his son not because he is hard but because he is righteous. And so that you would be saved from the wrath of God. And why did it all happen? Well, John wrote it all down and he says in John 20, verse 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What happened to Lazarus? Well, did you notice what Lazarus said? He didn't say anything. We never get any speech from Lazarus recorded in the Bible. We have no idea what Lazarus said but poets have wondered. Tennyson said, behold a man raised up by Christ. The rest remains unrevealed. What was it like to be Lazarus? To be with God in God's presence, a follower of Jesus, having died death and been received into God's presence and then being called back? to this sinful world, only knowing he would have to die again? C.S. Lewis imagined that scene. And he compared it to the death of the first martyr, Stephen, in the book of Acts. Stephen was stoned to death. Into your hands I commit my spirit, he said, and they threw rocks at him until he was dead. And Stephen died after Lazarus did, but C.S. Lewis imagines Stephen talking to Lazarus poetically, thinking about the fact that Lazarus would die again. And he wrote a short poem about it, and I love it. And I want you to hear it. Stephen to Lazarus. But was I the first martyr who gave up no more than life? Well, you already free among the dead, your rags stripped off, your fetters shed. Surrender to what all other men irrevocably keep. And when your battered ship at anchor lay, seemingly safe in the dark bay, no ripple stirs, obediently 
put out a second time to see, well knowing that your death in vain died once, must all be died again. You see, when you die in Jesus, it will be the greatest moment of your earthly life. If you die with faith in Christ, if your loved ones die with faith in Christ, there is only for them glory and joy, which makes Lazarus a pitiful scene. When he dies, to know that he has to die again. But when he dies that second time, he will die once and for all, and he will not really die. He will, even though he dies, will live because he believes in Jesus. Lazarus would have to die again, but then he would never die again. If you trust in Jesus tonight, put your faith in him, you can be sure that the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die, that that is a promise that's yours in Christ. Put your faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself up for you that you might enter into his life and experience the power of his resurrection. Pray with me. Father, thank you for these students and their attention this evening and throughout the week. I pray that they would take seriously what they've heard tonight and that the challenge that's been laid before them by Jesus himself to believe and to trust in him and to put all their confidence into into Jesus and to experience life and resurrection would be what fills them with unshakable hope. And that when they live their life in a fallen world with a, a fresh awareness of the reality of death all around us, that they would triumph. To know that you have defeated death in the resurrection of your son. Thank you that he holds the power of life and he offers it to us, life eternal, if we would trust and believe. Give faith, God, to those who lack it. Give trust and hope to those who don't have it tonight. And may they, in the quiet of their heart, even now, say those same words that Martha said, Lord, I believe you are the Son of God the promised one who's come into this world. Transform and make them believe and live and long for that resurrection. In Jesus' name.